Hello and welcome to this special edition of the Jack's Throwback Attack podcast. Well, I'm pleased to have with me on the podcast today, writer, producer, voiceover and actor Steve Ride. Hello there. Hello. How are <laughs> so, you today? Uh, yes, I'm all right, thank you. Yes, I'm okay. Fantastic uh, stuff. Yeah, hoping that uh, things calm down a bit in the east and uh, COVID uh, numbers reduce. But apart from that, it's all it's all good. Indeed, indeed. Well, thank you for agreeing to take part in the show. It's great to have you on. Um, I've got lots of stuff to ask about your uh, career in children's television. So um, I'm going to start right at the beginning. Um, I understand that your beginnings were in the 1980s and you acted in a few children's shows on Children's ITV. Is that right? That's right. Yes, I was um, a member of the Central Junior Television Workshop, which uh, Central being Central Television, um, uh, which they set up in Nottingham. And I joined that when I was 14 years old, which is a very long time ago, um, and auditioned for various uh, producers and directors that came down to see us uh, for, for various kids shows and got a part in Your Mother Wouldn't Like It, which was the first uh, TV show I appeared in. I actually appeared in a, a, an earlier series as an extra um, and was very excited, as were all the others who were appearing for the first time as extras and actually getting to visit the studios at Lenton Lane for the first time. And we had a dressing room of our own and that was uh, uh, incredible. And we were paid. We were paid for the day. We were paid, I think it was £25, which uh, at the age of 14 in 1985 was, uh, it was a king's ransom. It was <laughs> fantastic money. Uh, so, yeah, so that's that's where it all started. Uh, your, your mother wouldn't like it, which was already a, a BAFTA award-winning kids' show. Uh, we Series 2, I think, won the BAFTA, and we joined Series 3 um, and did that for a couple of series. That, that of course, evolved into Palace Hill, uh, in which I played Jimmy, the Time Warp kid, uh, for a couple of series, the, the 1940s um, throwback. Uh, yeah, so, that, so that's that's where it all began. Good stuff. And they were um, comedy shows. Now, that did, did that kickstart your interest in wanting to produce comedy yourself in the future? I, I think comedy uh, and entertainment were always in my, my blood, really. I, I, I've never... Really had any ambitions towards anything that was in any way vaguely educational or nutritional or, or uh, worthwhile. Um, so yeah, it, it uh, when we did our sessions at the workshop, uh, we did our improvs and our, our drama exercises. I would usually skew it in a comedy, uh, irreverent and often annoying. Uh, way that the uh, <laughs> person running the class wasn't necessarily that uh, <laughs> pleased about. So, so yes, it was always my interest always lay in, in comedy. I would say your mother wouldn't like it, um, as you can probably tell, was a bit before my time. But I have seen clips, and I've got friends who are huge fans <laughs> of the show. Um, but am I right in thinking it was quite a, an anarchic <clears throat> show? It was, yeah, for its time. I mean, it, it uh, spoofed a lot of uh, the, the contemporary. TV shows that, that kids, you know, the older kids would have been watching at, at, at that time. Um, Palace Hill, of course, was a spoof of Grange Hill, really, uh, just with the addition of the royal princes, William and Harry, when they were uh, small children. Um, 
so yeah, we, we, it was lots of sketches, and we we take the Mickey out of groups like Five Star, and uh, I did a, a a pretty pretty poor impression, I think, of uh, Tommy Cannon uh, <laughs> as Cannon, part of Cannon and Ball, and we were the hosts of that particular episode. Uh, and so so lots of impressions of varying degrees of quality, uh, and and spoofs of uh, shows from the eighties. Good stuff. Good stuff. Well, um, so going on from that, then, so um, so that was in the uh, mid to late eighties, early nineties, um, if, if I'm correct. Is that is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, would, that would be about eighty five, eighty six, I think. Yeah. Okay, and then how did you go from doing that to landing the position of um, doing voiceovers on CITV? Because in 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 nineteen ninety three, they dropped the out the InVision continuity and brought in OutVision, and you were the person that voiced pretty much everything on there for many years. That's that's right. Yeah, I was I was there for five years. Um, I was I was very fortunate. Uh, yeah, it was an audition, and again, I heard about it through the workshop. Uh, which was run at the time by Ian Smith, um, who's been responsible for many far greater careers than mine, um, but but certainly played a big part in my in, in my career. And I went along to Birmingham uh, to to the old studios and met a producer called Jude Hartley and Denise Winterburn, who were running presentation for for, for the network for CITV, and did a couple of test promos and a couple of live links and yeah I, I got the job and that was a, that was a big turning point really because i was i learned so much you know being being live every day and, and the uh, the process of creating trailers and short bits of tv little interstitials as we called them little sketches and uh, and other various uh, pieces of uh, of kit that would slot into all those afternoon as i'm sure a lot of your listeners know those uh, those links in in the afternoon um five days a week and they were all well most most of those broadcasts were live so obviously the trailer the promos were were pre-recorded but everything else was was live and that was uh, it was a fantastic experience yeah that was from 93 uh through to 98 yeah uh, i think it was yeah yeah and um Prior to that, had you always had like um, a talent for doing voices? Because you did do many different voices on those on those links. Thank you. That's very kind. Yeah, I, I mean, I I, uh, I did a bit. I mean, as a, as an actor, when I was when I was doing the acting, I, I, the starting point for me would often be the voice of of a character, and and I felt that once I'd found a voice, that I could build everything else around that. Really, and I felt comfortable uh so uh, yeah and i always loved radio comedy and you know kenny everett and and uh, all of that uh, sort of stuff so and I, and I could you know at the time i could do impression a couple of impressions reasonably well um so yeah it, it was it was something i felt quite comfortable with really and i've, I've always loved radio and uh, as, as a medium and uh, I, I remember making my own little sort of radio shows with a cassette uh, tape to tape deck uh, <laughs> back in back in the uh, early 80s and uh, trying to put I don't know if you remember Amstrad bought out a I think it was called the Studio 100 
which was a, a hi-fi system that you, you could buy, but it was it had lots of little knobs and faders and uh, you could plug four microphones into it. Um, and that was, for me, at that age, you know, it was a dream come true. I could afford to buy one because I'd done a bit of TV work, so I had, I had the, uh, the 150 quid to go and, uh, and buy one of these Amstrad Studio, Studio 100, Studio 500, something like that. If you Google it, I'm sure you'd, it, would, it mm-hmm. would pop up. Um, and uh, yeah, it would make little radio comedy radio shows my own amusement, <laughs> and, <laughs> and hopefully that of my friends uh, in my bedroom. Um, so yeah, that uh, that that was certainly a job. It was a fantastic job for me, and the the, the people were great. Uh, I got to write a lot of my own stuff. In fact, the links, the live links, I wrote myself. Um, and it was, yeah, it was a fabulous in, introduction to uh, TV production as well. Mm-hmm. It must have been um, quite a full-on job because I imagine you probably would have had to have watched a lot of the programmes to know what to say. And then not only that, you appeared in so many of the promos and sometimes you're actually on location on the pro- programmes for the, for the adverts. So you must have, been, must have been quite busy for those five years. It was, yeah, it was, it was, it was certainly a full-time job. But um, as I say, you know, absolutely brilliant experience, uh, and I loved the shows. You know, the mm-hmm. great programs. You know, everything from Pat Sharp's Fun House to the Raggy Dolls to uh, lots of Scooby Doo, of course. Uh, back then, what else was there? Oh, the Sooty, Sooty. I always loved Sooty. Uh, Matthew Corbett, particularly, I thought was fantastic. Um, so yeah, I you know I was I was in my element really, um, and who who else got to got paid to watch cartoons and uh, great kid shows for a living and then talk about them a little bit for, for an hour and a half every afternoon and and then go home. You know it was uh, it, it was great experience. And I got to meet a lot of you know uh, the celebrities and idols from that time. Uh, which was, you know, the, the, the how-to lot, Gaz Top. Yeah. And uh, who else? Um, uh, Pat Sharp, of course, from Fun House. Uh, Hugo Myatt from uh, um, Nightmare. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, it was, uh, <laughs> it, was, it was great. Yeah, they were great days. And I love the city of Birmingham as well. You know, I, I moved to Birmingham from my hometown of uh, hometown of Sutton Ashfield in Nottinghamshire, and uh, I loved it. I spent my twenties in Birmingham, and uh, I, I miss it still. It was great. It's a great city, it really is. Indeed, it is. Although I might be a bit biased in saying that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. and, and the Black Country. My, yes. my my first serious girlfriend was from Hales Owen. Okay, uh, many years. So I've, I've got a lot of affection for the Black Country. Fabulous stuff. Well, yes, it is a great area, but again, I might be biased there. <laughs> um, at the time of when you were doing CITV um, at, yeah. in Birmingham, at the same time you also appeared in one of its programmes, Wizardora. Um, you were Tatty Bogle, the Scarecrow. What was it like doing that show? Oh, that, it was it was great. It really was. I took over from uh, the wonderful Joe Greco, who played uh, Tatty Bogle in the first two series, I think it was. Um, and it came about because David Crozier, who I'd worked with on Palace Hill, was the director of Wizardora. And he called me one day and obviously thought I'd make a, a pretty good scarecrow and asked me if I'd be able to do the job. And I managed to arrange it with uh, good folk at CITV that I could take my leave 
for the, the my annual leave for the, the four or five weeks I would need to go and shoot Wizardora down in um, it was New Malden actually the first the first uh, place at Fountain Studios and uh, yeah I, I I went down and I put I, I still had Joe's costume it was a little bit shorter than me I think so the the trousers only came up to the middle of my shins um, or came down there and. Uh, yeah, it was it was great fun. I, I, I remember having uh, sh sheaves of wheat glued to my eyebrows, <laughs> uh, which were quite painful to remove, and took most of my eyebrow hair with it. Um, and yeah, we, with Lizzie uh, and Wendy van der Plank, of course, who was the original uh, Wizardora. Uh, Lizzie McPhee took over from her uh, for a later series. Um, and the, the brilliant Brian Murphy, uh, who I knew growing up as, as George from George and Mildred, uh, obviously a great actor who'd done many, many other things. And he and I were, were actually very close. We, we, we had a great friendship and uh, it was lovely to invite him many years later to come and be uh, a guest actor on The Slammer. Yeah. Uh, up at Three Mills, and, and he did, a, as, as I knew he would and always does, a, a fantastic uh, term for us as the world's worst ventriloquist. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, it was it was wonderful. It, we did, uh, I think it was four series of, of Wizardora, uh, and it was just, yeah, just, just tremendous fun with a, with a great group of people. I know this all sounds very... <laughs> <laughs> very schmaltzy but actually it's true you know you you, you do uh, tend to get nice people working in kids tv generally and um yeah i've got very very happy memories of those days that's good to hear i, I mean going back to the costume because there was a lot of straw sticking out of it was it uncomfortable to wear because that would irritate me <laughs> i would have to say yeah, I think it was a mixture of sort of that raffia stuff and 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 some real straw. The the, the stuff they the the sheaths they glued to my eyebrows were, were real, um, but it, it wasn't particularly. It, uh, the wig was a very itchy actually. Now you come to mention it, and that had to be sort of pinned in with hair grips, which stuck into my scalp. Uh, and that that was the most. The costume itself was fine, uh, but the wig. That, that straw wig was uh, was a bit of a pain. I think I earned my money with that just, just by wearing that. Um, was it surreal? Because obviously you would be present, presenting CITV and then you'd have to watch yourself back every week watching Wizardora yeah. when it was on. <laughs> yeah, I've never been a big fan of watching myself back. I probably won't listen to this podcast, Jack, to be honest with you. <laughs> um, but uh, I, yeah, I, I sort of uh, I found something else to do during the, the 10, 15 minutes that Wizardora was on. We're getting ready for the next show. Probably yes. Tots TV or uh, Thomas the Tank Engine, something like that. Absolutely. I mean, the. As you probably know, in the days of YouTube, lots of people have dug out their VHS tapes and like to upload episodes of Wizardora or CITV continuity. Um, how do you feel about that? Do you ever sometimes be tempted just to have a look and see what you said 25, 30 years ago or whatnot? <laughs> it, it's, it's so easy to do. I, I have done it. Uh, I, I've not done it for a very long time, but I have done it, and uh, yeah, it's just it just takes you right back, you know, because this was my every day from the age of twenty-one. Uh, I was when I when I started at CITV through till um, yeah, through till I was twenty-six, I think twenty-six, twenty-seven, uh, when I moved on to producing it, mm -hmm. which is a, a, another story, um, and. 
yeah, I, I, you know, sometimes I, I, I wince. Sometimes I think, oh, that was all right. Or, <laughs> you know, um, it's, uh, yeah, on the whole, I, it was it was good. I, I mean, it must have been okay because we did it for five years. Yeah. So, you know, it, it can't have been uh, that bad. Um, but, yeah, you know, when, you, when you're broadcasting live five days a week, pretty much 52 weeks a year, there's, there's going to be a, a mixed bag, yes. shall we say. Certainly. Stuff to <laughs> I mean, there was a, there was a time uh, I'd, I'd say maybe a year ago, maybe two years ago, where I was responsible for posting a clip on Twitter and tagging you in it, um, and I seem to remember your response was oh. just was just purely "Oh God," because he was a promo for Funhouse. <laughs> And in the promo, oh, right, okay. you put on a wetsuit and then you have green gunge dumped on you. And you say, like, Pat Sharp, I'm ready for you now. And then all this green gunge pours all over you. Um, it was, I'm sure that was probably cringy to watch. We had some great promo directors uh, work at CITV, a chap called Tony Jopia, who, who makes uh, makes horror films now, okay. actually, I think. And, uh, but, but still makes promos as well. Uh, and a chap called Tony Trafford, and they would come sometimes with some very uh, sort of avant-garde ideas for trailers uh, for, for various shows. And I remember that being one. There some other really surreal, because uh, I did trailers as well, yeah. uh, and occasional okay, voices for, for shows outside of CITV for central television, mm-hmm. for, uh, for that region, and for some uh, network promos that Central made for the network. Um and yes, some of them were were really quite odd. I remember there was a one where I had to wear a Velcro suit, and somebody was throwing Velcro balls, which were sticking to my head. Um, and I think that was supposed to represent ideas coming to me uh, to to promo a quiz show. I can't even remember what it was for. I can't remember what it was for. Um, but it, you know, it was great that we were we were able to be so experimental yeah um, you know uh and and yeah that you know that, that uh <laughs> that fun ass promo we, i think it was there was a great desire to find new and interesting ways of promoting the shows yeah rather than just showing clips from the shows and saying fun house is on you know fridays mm-hmm. at 20 past four um so you've got to admire that. i didn't always pay off didn't always work <laughs> um but i think it was it was nice that we um, and that they, that you know, the guys who came up with the ideas, tried to to push the envelope and do something a bit different and, a, uh, and stuff that might, you know, for for whatever reason, stick in your memory mm-hmm. uh, and remind you to watch the show. It was very competitive. I just remember that, and we, we used to look at the overnight figures, you know, sort of religiously every day, um, and we we felt a real need to you know, win the ratings war on a daily basis, which I'd say for, for a large part we, we did back in those days. Um, but, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> some, some, of the, some of the fine messes I found myself in were, uh, were, were unusual, to say the least. <laughs> uh, and were the promos also filmed at Central? Did you make use of the studios for those? They were, yeah, and, and that was another great thing for me i remember we filmed quite a few of them uh in the same studio that tiswalls was was made in and i can't remember what the number was was it two i believe because um, i've got friends who are massive nerds of tiswalls it was studio three studio three yeah uh but i and that i i found out on that because <laughs> tiswalls was a, a massive 
uh, show for me when I was a kid. And I loved it and I loved that my parents loved it. And I loved that they loved it. And um, Taron and Sally James and Bob Carroll G's and uh, Sylvester McCoy, and, you know, all those great people who, who took part in, in that. And Benny Henry. And, uh, yeah, I, it was it was a religion for me for a couple of years as, as a kid. And certainly, I think you can see the influence of that in some of uh, some of my later work. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I, I adored it. So to be in that same studio, and I could see, you know, there were bits of it that, although they, they were quite run down by this stage, you know, they weren't very busy. Um, uh, and the old central studios were on the verge of being sort of closed down uh, and the move to, uh, to Gas Street. Um, I, I, and I would look at old clips of Tiswas and say, oh, blimey, that's the, that's the, the rail. <laughs> you know, that's the fire escape. Uh, and, and when Tarrant came out of um, the back door of, of Central, um, at OB security, and was, was naked and was covering his bits with both hands and, you know, uh, and, and that, just seeing that door was, was magic. You know, it was, uh, yeah, it, it meant a lot and was, was really exciting to be there, albeit it was, you know, it was not at all in its heyday uh, and, and the studios were, you know, on their way out, certainly. Mm -hmm. Yeah, lots of it had moved to Nottingham, of course, at that point. Yeah. Um, so you mentioned earlier, so after five years of that, um, production of CITV moved to Gas Street, a couple of streets down, and you changed roles and you became the producer. So um, tell me how um, that change happened and, and and how you came to pick um, the likes of Stephen Mulhern and Daniel Nichols to be the hosts of, of the new InVision uh, relaunch that happened. Yeah, well, there'd been a change at the top. Uh, um, and uh, a, a brilliant guy called Nigel Pickard came in to, to run CITV, and uh, we, you know, we've been doing it our way, the outer vision way, for five years. And it, he was uh, a, a big believer that it was time to go back in vision, which I think was absolutely the right call. Um, I was a bit long in the tooth for that sort of thing, and it wasn't really for me anyway. You know, I I, I was quite happy to do uh, the voices and some envision messing about you know as, as various characters and, and acting but I, I never considered myself really to be a presenter um and i was i was out the door pretty much you know i got my coat on ready to leave uh, and the the guy they brought in to uh, exec it a uh, chap called graham douglas uh, asked me if i'd like to stay and produce um and i thought about it and said no and they offered me a little bit more money. So I thought about it again, said yes, uh, and gave it a go. And yeah, and that was a big turning point for me. And I think I found really then what I really wanted to do uh, for the rest of my career. And that was, and that was produce um, content uh, as opposed to appear in it. Um, and we needed presenters. I, uh, again, with, with my background at the Central Judy Television Workshop, was very familiar with auditions and, uh, and workshopping and, and improvisation, all of which are very important, of course, to presenters who are doing uh, live shows. So uh, set up a, a two-day audition. Well, first of all, we put the call out for tapes and people sent in 
thousands of VHS. That's what it was in the day, VHS cassettes. And we'd put them in and we'd watch them and pretty much within the first 10 or 15 seconds, you knew whether um, this person stood a chance or not. And there were some very bizarre some very bizarre tapes that came into it. Some of them probably, you know, borderline legal. Um, and uh, Stephen and Danielle were among the, 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 you know, the very long list. And then we whittled that down and we, uh, we called them in for screen tests. Uh, and they both did very well. And then we got our last, I think it was six people, uh, three boys and three girls. And in order to ascertain what the best chemistry, what the best um, combo would, would be of these six people. Do the two-day workshop uh, on, on Gas Street, uh, on the, the building, the white building opposite Central Television. I'm not sure if it's still there, just over the bridge. And, yeah, we had, we had a great time playing drama games and doing improvisations and, uh, and all that sort of stuff. And it was very clear to me at the end of that two days that Stephen and Danny were... The, the hot yeah. ticket. Uh, so we, uh, we took that uh, to the network, who uh, agreed, thankfully, and the rest is history. Mr. Mulhern's been there ever since, and Danny's gone on to do some other great stuff as well. Um, yeah, and they, they, they remain very, very talented and uh, successful, which is great. Indeed, it was great. That was really my era of CITV that I remember the most. It was, it was just... Yeah. So good. I loved it. I watched it every single day without fail, um, pretty much from when that relaunch happened in 98 up until when it left Gas Street, um, about 2004. Um, yeah. And um, I, I imagine it was, although probably a, a very busy job, um, it was great fun and rewarding for for everybody. It, it was, and we all got on so well. I mean, we, we really, you know, we saw each other every day. We socialised with each other because when you're doing a job like that, it is pretty much all-consuming. You know, you, you haven't got a lot of time outside of it for other relationships. And we're all of a similar sort of age, you know. I was, I was a little bit older. Um, but, you know, we, we would often uh, go for uh, a, a drink on uh, Broad Street and... Uh, and yeah, we we were we were great pals as as well as colleagues, uh, which made everything a, a lot easier, you know. And and we had a great time. Why wouldn't we? You know, what a what a fantastically privileged position to be in, you know, for all of us. Um, so yeah, it, I, again, days I look back on very very fondly indeed. Fabulous stuff. It's quite surreal for me, really, because I was such a huge fan of CITV and to hear people talking about places that I know so incredibly well. I mean, um, Broad Street and Gas Street, I, I know really, really well. I mean, um, the, the, the Broad Street studios yeah. have long been demolished, but um, the Gas Street building still stands. I went past it uh, not too long ago, actually, and because I've previously interviewed um, Danielle and Leah Charles King, I've still got their contact information. I just took a picture of the front and sent it to them and said remember this place and they said oh yes because it hasn't it hasn't changed one bit on the outside um in yeah. fact um i walked past it and i remember there was a week of programs or a week of continuity um for sutty's 50th birthday and um there was a sketch where sue daydreams about Stephen and the walking along the bridge and that little bridge at the side with the little water under it is still there so it hasn't changed at all i'm sure you'd be pleased to hear yeah. 
Yeah, no, I, I am actually. It's, it's it's nice to know it's it's still there. And I remember that week, the, the Sooty 50th anniversary week, as the exec producer Sooty came and spent uh, spent a few days with us. Um, uh, John, uh, can't remember his surname, but it was a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, and we and we did the song. I remember poor old Mr. Mulhern being so uh, uncomfortable singing that song on, on the last day on Friday, <laughs> when they finally <laughs> discovered that Sooty and Sweet and the gang had been there all week because the, yes. the conceit was that they didn't know. Um, uh, so it was a, it was almost a mini drama in amongst the links. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, he did it, bless him, and uh, got away with it. I think. Where? <laughs> because <laughs> um, I've always wondered, actually, because the, the Gas Street building um, has pretty much always just been for Central News. Um, I think, if I'm right in thinking, when it was built, it was intended to be wholly used by ITV. But as things went on, it's just become a news um, thing, and they rent out most of it now. Um, in the early days of the Envision, it was in that very small studio. Um, where was that base? Because I know later on you shared um, space with Central, and that was the bigger blue set. So where was the, the smaller one originally? The smaller one, it was on the first floor, and it was just like a, it was just a little chroma key studio, I think that news used. Um, it was it was it was virtually in the newsroom um, for Central News West, uh, and there was a little a tiny little gallery next door. And we were able to, we, we, we agreed that we could use it and dress it. And that's where the cutouts of all the characters from the shows, the idea for that, because I was looking, I was thinking, well, how are we going to make this look like anything other than, you know, I mean, obviously the BBC had done the broom cupboard. If you want to, it was probably the same size as their studio, uh, but we didn't want it to look like the broom cupboard. We didn't want a desk and, and you know, sort of um, uh, the, that sort of setup. So it occurred to me that if we had life-size cutouts of characters from the various shows dotted around, that would be a, a cheap way of making it look interesting and promoting the shows uh, at the same time because, mm-hmm. you know, we, we were, that's what that's what we were all about. Uh, at CITV was promoting the shows, pointing to the shows, uh, because we were a commercial channel and we, you know, we needed to a- a- attract the audiences. And we could find numerous ways, interesting, uh, clever perhaps, uh, but but creative ways of doing that, pointing to the shows. Well, everything we did promoted the show. And I think that's absolutely right. And I think sometimes the BBC meandered off into becoming a little bit sort of you weren't quite sure what it was about you know some of some of their their link time um because they were opposed to the hard sell uh but we sort of gleefully uh, took that took that on you know yeah um, and, and that helped us actually i think i think it helps helped us focus and helped us be just as if not more creative because we had a a theme for our ideas mm-hmm. all the time, whatever show that happened to be. Yeah, uh, and and the one good thing about having the Invision was is that pretty much anybody that appeared on a CITV show was invited in for a for a conversation, and it, it, that's the other thing for me. When I walk past the building, I, I stand there sometimes and think the amount of people that I loved watching on CITV, the various programmes that I loved, like Zap and Art Attack and yeah. um, Sooty, um, everybody 
walk through those gates at some point for a chat, which I thought and, was cool. And, and some big stars, some big stars, you know, yeah. from from the wider world of entertainment. I, I remember Britney Spears mm. came to it before she was famous, uh, or when she was just on the cusp of becoming famous, um, and she was doing a bit of a whirlwind tour of the UK, and she came and she performed for us, and we even got her to do a line for our promo tape because the, the contract to provide the links for the ITV network was coming up. And we got all the celebs who came in to look at the camera and say, Central is the home of CITV, which it was, yeah, mm -hmm. and always had been. Um, Jim Stoko was the man who created it, really. He was the head of presentation and promotion at Central Television, uh, a great, great guy. Um, and he uh, pretty much invented the concept of it, uh, really, of links before the BBC did. Uh, created that as a as a day part, you know, that had its own bespoke uh, packaging and links and promos for the network, uh, and that was before the BBC. Uh, although most people probably don't don't realise that. Um, and yeah, I, all of that, uh, all of that stuff, all, all of those stars would come. And uh, we'd get them to say Central Zone CITV for our promo reel to win the contract again for the network, which which thankfully we did. Um, but yeah, I, I, there were there were a lot of all the stars of that era. You would have loved it, Jack. Uh, I would have been in, had, a, had a couple of days in reception. I'm sure you would have uh, <laughs> you would have absolutely loved it. Yeah, I think I would have been running around very excited. Um, I'd be the same now if the you know if, if any if anybody from that era walked past me. Um, yeah, <laughs> I mean it was only it was only last week that I I went and met up and had dinner with um, Tim Whitnell, who was Angelo in Mike and Angelo. So that was uh, cool. Great Tim, yeah, yeah, he's uh, he's a great guy as well, and uh, met met him several times. In fact, when was the last time I saw him? I think we were we were in uh, Teddington mm. making. Diddy movies. Oh yeah, Dick and Dick and Diddy movies. And uh, Bob Golding is a friend of an old friend of Tim's, and uh, he came. We 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 all met up one evening after after work for a drink, and he was lovely. He was writing the Kenny Everett biopic. Oh yeah, was um, for for BBC Four. Uh, yeah, and and he remembered me, and actually he wrote some songs for Your Mother Wouldn't Like It. Okay. He wrote some of the songs for Your Mother Wouldn't Like It that, that we sang. Um, so we, our connection went way back. Okay. Small world, isn't it, with kids' TV? Yeah, isn't it? Just, yeah. <laughs> um, and also, uh, one last thing with the CITV era, um, recently um, something's resurfaced online called um, It Shouldn't Happen to a Children's Presenter, which was the auditions after Stephen and Danielle when it was Andrew and Tom who was picked, and you featuring it a lot, sh showing you um, going through the tapes and picking people. Um, do you remember, remember that being filmed? <laughs> I do. I, I do remember it very well. I mean, Tom is another uh, fantastic talent uh, that I spotted. He was too young the first time. I spoke. He sent his tape in and he was only 14 and he was from, uh, he was from Bourneville in Birmingham. Um, probably still is. And I remember thinking, this guy's got something quite special, actually. Uh, and I was very keen to get him in. I did, we did get him in and obviously he, he, got, the, uh, he got the part. But I, he's another... I've got a couple of names that I, I lay some credit to discovering them uh, and their great careers. And uh, Mr. Mulhern is one. Tom Arthur Hilp, as he's now known, uh, is another. And uh, I'm Elvin O'Doom, of course. Um, 
who were I, I I I'm proud to say that I gave them their first gig, their first professional gig um, on TV. Uh, but no, t- Tom and Andrea was excellent as well. You know, really, really good uh, and approachable and likable and really stood out from so many of the other auditionees. So I think we had a we had a cracking team mm-hmm. uh, of presenters. You know, we really did. And then yeah. we brought in uh, Leah. And uh, when those guys came, uh, was my transition out of out of CITV and over to the Beeb. And so I didn't get to work with them as much, really. But I was there when they when they came on board, and they were. Yeah, I mean that that documentary shows me talking to one candidate that they uh, that they featured throughout. I haven't watched it, of course, as you know. I never watch anything that I take part in, um, and I, I come across as quite callous <laughs> because I tell her not to not to be upset by uh, not having got the part. Uh, but of course, what they didn't show was the hour and a half. Uh, I spent on the phone <laughs> talking her down from her disappointment. Um, and I think they cut it down to about 10 seconds of me saying, well, yeah, it's not really that bad. You know, worst things happen at sea and uh, all the best for the future, uh, which uh, wasn't quite an accurate. <laughs> well, I mean, obviously, they couldn't, they couldn't show the whole thing. Mm-hmm. But uh, it wasn't... Uh, it made me look more callous, I think, <laughs> than, I, than I was. <laughs> yes, that's exactly how it plays out. Um, it did, it, it did play out. Bloody hell, you know. I mean, the, the guy, I remember the cameraman, actually, who was, because he was in the in the office with me at, in, at Central, and, and obviously um, uh, she was at home. And he said, uh, he said, oh, that was, that was a tough call. I thought you did really well. Uh, I said, thank you. Yeah, it was, it was a tough call. Yeah, because I think the expectation was, certainly from her point of view, and the way it had been set up, that she would get the part. You know, they'd followed her all the way through, and she was very good, and she was um, she was a strong contender, but it it just so happened that, you know, yeah. she, she was picked for the post. Mm-hmm. Uh, and sometimes that, that, that does happen, yeah. you know, for no good reason, for no really, you know, quantifiable reason. It goes the other way. Um but yeah, I, I remember a couple of people saying to me for a while afterwards, "Bloody hell, you were a bit hard on that girl, weren't you?" <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and unfortunately, it's um, it popped up on YouTube in recent times. I'm afraid to say. Oh, so. did it? Oh, great! <laughs> <I love YouTube. laughs> um, so let's move on then to when you went to the Beeb. Um, I'm, I'm assuming this was around 2001, 2002. Um, it was. And uh, you were responsible for creating one of my favourite Saturday morning kids shows, Dick and Dom in the Bungalow. Um, uh, tell us about the genesis of that programme. So, I went, yeah, so I went over to, to the BBC um, where Nigel Picard, who had been the head of kids at CITV, was now head of uh, BBC Kids. Uh, I met a, a, a great guy and a, a mentor of mine, Paul Smith, who was the head of presentation there and uh, got a job producing presentation for the new channel, mm-hmm. CBBC. As, as it happens, I actually spent most of my time in press doing the BBC One and BBC Two links. I, I didn't actually produce any of the, or very little of the channel, the new channel stuff, because the new channels uh, were just launching that year. Um, and there I met uh, Richard McCourt and Dominic Wood, 
who were sort of becoming a double act. You know, they'd, they'd done a few things together. They weren't officially known as Dick and Dom just yet, but that was just starting to happen, coinciding with the, the launch of the channels. And we did our, our bits, you know, well under the radar for the most part and some fairly daft stuff, but still, you know, my old ethos from CITV was that everything must be programme focused. No matter how daft and bizarre and crazy it is, it must have a point to it ultimately. Um, and that is to promote a show. Um, and we got on like a house on fire and they loved the stuff I wrote for them and I loved the stuff that they came up with and did and we were making each other laugh all the time. Uh, and then it was announced that th they wanted to... Uh, shows for the weekends for Saturday and Sunday morning, three hours long each, with acquisitions with cartoons. Um, so effectively extended links, but, but you know very extended links. Um, you know some of some of the bits that we did were 10, 15 minutes before we hit a, a, a cartoon, probably longer than that actually. Um, and we were given a title, so I put I put my hand up to do it. And Paul Smith, bless him, gave me that opportunity. And we were given a title, which I, I believe Nigel Pickard came up with, uh, Dick and Dom in the Bungalow, because people said, OK, so Dick and Dom are going to do this Saturday morning show. What, what, what are we going to call it? Uh, Dick and Dom in the house? Uh, and Nigel said, well, more like Dick and Dom in the Bungalow. And that stuck. <laughs> uh, and, that was, uh, and that was great. And, and so we were given eight weeks three hours of airtime on Saturday and three hours on Sunday. Yeah. Uh, a very small budget and told to come up with something. Uh, and, yeah, so set about that. And I think the breakthrough came when I decided it should be a game show. I knew I wanted some kids in it, not lots, not like a live and kicking audience, but just a smaller group of kids, a friendship group, and I thought, if we make this a game show throughout the whole three hours, it gives, again, a sense of purpose to whatever nonsense we come up with, because whatever, whatever it is, we can award or deduct points for taking part in it. Um, and then it sort of it, it, it took shape, really, and uh, I wrote that first programme script and said, OK, we'll call them the Bungalow Heads and... Uh, and, and we'll get them to do this and that, and we'll, this is how we'll introduce it. And, and we came up with some, some games uh, like uh, Bangers and Dash, where three of them would dress up as jockeys in the silks and three of them would dress up as sausages, and they had to ride their friend across the set. Uh, uh, and uh, Fat on Your Back, which is where two of them would wear big, fat monks costumes and literally just have to stand up. Which was a lot harder than it sounded, um, and yeah, and all sorts of other games and, and madness in that first series, which was very rough. If you get a chance, I'm sure it's on YouTube. Uh, that first episode, but we we were literally no rehearsal at all. Um, we I think we'd had an hour before we went live, where we were actually in the studio with a full crew, um, but in the hands of the brilliantly talented Dick and Dom, you can do that because they can turn any situation to their advantage and, uh, and, and guide it safely home. So although I was in their ear pretty much all the time during the shows, 
we knew we were in safe hands. And their their talkback technique is absolutely second to none. You know, I mean, and that is a real skill to have somebody giving you instructions in your ear while you're talking, so that's not happening, and you're just feeding that information into your act, into what you're doing. Uh, which they can both do seamlessly, and I've always been in awe of of that talent because that that alone is you know extraordinary. I couldn't do it. I know I couldn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, so that's so that's sorry, I was rambling on. That's how that started. Yeah, fabulous. And and it went from those small beginnings where it was just on the the main channel. Eventually moved to BBC One and became even bigger i mean uh, did you think that the show would become the huge success that it that it did and the fact that it's so fondly remembered to this day it's really odd you know because i no is the short answer um but we didn't really care about that at the time when it first started uh we were just having such a great time uh, and and we felt it was good you know we felt it was different and it was good uh and we we thought if you know if, if people watching this are having a tenth of the fun that we're having making it then i think we're we're onto something here but we didn't really it didn't really register with us the channels had just started and nobody was watching the channels at, at all the cbbc channel for sure cbb is probably a different matter uh, but cbbc uh nobody was watching it um, and we started to register an actual rating on the Barb system during our shows on Saturday and Sunday morning. And the internet had started, which was still very new then, um, and uh, TV Custard and um, a couple of the other uh, sort of message boards started to mention us. And I think the first review I remember, somebody in the office read it out, two custard-covered thumbs up uh, for Dick and Nomi the Bungalow. And then we realised that people were watching it and enjoying it and were, you know, sort of joining our gang. Because that was the thing about the show, was the more you watched, the more you were rewarded because there were so many callbacks to things that had happened in previous weeks and previous episodes. And you would see how a game that we tested by necessity live on air would evolve and get better. (laughs) (laughs) Hopefully get better or slicker, you know, uh, um, as, as the weeks went on. In fact, we one point we used to stick a new and improved stamp on the game sting uh, as, as it finally sort of uh, you know came came together but hopefully that journey was fun for the viewer as well and that was the, that was the thing we always felt we, you know we included the viewer in uh, it wasn't all in in jokes and and us just amusing ourselves you know it yeah. was all if you were watching you were you were part of it yeah. Mm-hmm. Certainly. I mean, yeah, it came across that way. It was certainly um, very chaotic and anarchic. And the one thing I've noticed looking back at it as an adult is how much was squeezed into it that I'm like, the, the intended target audience of children, would they have got this? Because there was like, I, I'm sure I remember a joke. I, I hope I haven't um, made this up, but I seem to remember somebody wandering on set dressed as Kate Bush singing Wuthering Heights and then being carted away by many white coats. And then there was the various celebrities that were in the cage that were like people that had been on television 20 years ago. And then in the final series there was um, the game shows most of which hadn't been on TV for a long time. Um, so, I mean, why did you decide to do that? Because I'm sure the kids were like "What? what's this? You know, um, Because uh I wanted to do it <laughs> uh, I, because it, it it made me laugh, and yeah. I, I I think um, 
I, I, I you know, as I say, the worst thing you can be is, is, is self-indulgent in, in, in these things. But I think that, for example, the game shows, so, so Bullseye, uh, which obviously those of a certain age would know, um, but if you didn't, it didn't really matter because you sort of got it anyway. You know, you could see what the point of it was. You weren't excluded because you'd never watched Bullseye. You could see they were trying to throw stuff at a dartboard and they'd score on that basis, you know. And, so, and yes, some of the, you know, the bully references would be that they'd be better if you had seen it, perhaps. But they weren't totally excluding you if you didn't come with that, with, with that prior knowledge. And, and it was sort of aimed... Although it, clearly it was a kids' show, but it was looking for that slightly broader adult audience as well. You know, we had a big student following, and uh, it goes back to my love of Tiswas. And I might have been quite odd in this, but I loved as a kid that my parents loved watching Tiswas with me, and it was quality time, you know, for us as a as a family to to watch television, and. I loved it because of all the stuff that I got out of it and the, and the maps. It was the same with the goodies as well, actually, I remember as, as, as a kid, you know. Um, and I loved watching my mum and dad laugh at Tarrant and Sally James and Sylvester McCoy and Lenny Henry. You know, I, I that made me feel this was, I don't know, it made, it made me feel like this was good stuff, you know, because it's, it's making the grown-ups laugh. It's not... Uh, and that, that meant a lot to me, and I... I and, and the, with the bungalow that we were able to put some of that stuff in the odd reference that only the mums and dads would get. Yes. But it didn't matter. It didn't, it didn't get in the way of enjoying it as an eight-year-old, you know, and it, and, and it just, and it's Saturday morning. It's a different time. Adults are around to view, you know, it's not, it's not tea time on a Wednesday um, when there's so much other stuff going on, you know, in, in the week. Um, and I think we had a bit of a duty to, include as many of the families uh, as we could and those little daft bits um yeah i, I yeah. think they were an important part of its of its uh, appeal Certainly. To, to everybody to all the age groups indeed indeed um and also i guess i mean i, I don't know whether this happened in his was his case but it certainly happened a lot in in the bungalow's case it, it was a show that um caused a lot of controversy got discussed in parliament there was <laughs> newspaper articles about a couple of moments um we we proud of the controversy that sometimes it caused it was as a producer sometimes you just like going oh god what have i done you know such as the famous one where dick was pregnant or when don wore that t-shirt that said morning wood that got him to a lot of bother and stuff like that <laughs> i mean what were uh, your thoughts on that no i I, I, I always felt, and you, you know, it, it, you can only do what you what you think is is right, and, and, and we never really set out just purely to be controversial. Um, but and it was a different time politically as well. You know, it was uh, the, the country had a different vibe about it. You know, this was t Tony Blair. It was New Labour. Um, it, things felt more liberal, generally. I think. Uh, in the country. Um, and we had very supportive bosses uh, all the way up to the very top, you know, all the way up to Alan Yentop, who uh, appeared in, in uh, the very last episode of Dick and Dominic. Mm -hmm. Yes. And was, a, and was a great supporter of ours. And we felt really enabled, you know. It wasn't about, oh, should we do, you know. I mean, obviously, you know, we needed reining in at times and, and, and 
thank goodness we were we were pulled back um, uh, when it, it was looking like it might be inappropriate. But but also you know I my spider sense tingles, and I I think I've got a pretty strong sense of of what's on the line and what's over it, you know. Um, and sometimes you you know you might debate that call was slightly off, but but I think generally speaking, uh, most of it. Um, and and of its time, you know. It, I mean, it was yep. it was sixteen years ago now. Mm-hmm. That's that's a long time. Yes. Um, so <laughs> and you can't judge everything everything in the past by today's standards because, the, you know, the the, the, the situations were, were were different then. Although, you know, we, we are more enlightened. You would hope. Yes. Now, uh, and there was there was perhaps certain things that I, I think uh, were ill-advised but for the majority of it i stand by mm-hmm. um and think you know we, it's uh, it's our job to to push the envelope and uh you know try things and and be a bit bit edgy Absolutely. while still being you know responsible <laughs> absolutely um so it's the 20th anniversary of dick and dom in the bungalow this year and it's been announced that there's going to be a live tour um tell us a bit about that and the, and the whole genesis behind the idea uh well I, I think it's something that we've we've been quite interested in doing for a while we, we like the idea of uh of doing a stage version we did actually do a stage version Back in around about 2005, we did a, a charity show at the Bloomsbury Theatre in London uh, for myeloma uh, cancer research, uh, which was uh, an illness that, uh, that touched Dom's family. And uh, yeah, we, we sort of we were in production, so it was fairly easy to get everybody to sort of um, muck in, and in about four days. Um, get a, a stage show up and running. Um, and it was great fun. The whole cast were involved and uh, it, yeah, it was it was seat-of-the-pants stuff. Um, didn't really have a budget as such other than in goodwill of those taking part. Uh, but it was great. And, uh, yeah, we, we got a good review in the Evening Standard, which I, th- I thought it was very, very nice of them to review us considering how ad hoc the whole thing was um but yeah it, it it seemed to go down very well we played we played just two shows it was a sunday i think it was a matinee and an evening performance and uh, packed houses and yeah it, it was great fun so i think from that we always had somewhere in the back of our minds that we'd quite like to do it again and the 20th anniversary seemed like a good excuse a good, a good reason to do it so uh so yeah, here we are. We, we, we teamed up with a, a company called Kilimanjaro. And we do lots of these um, sorts of shows, TV shows on on stage. Fabulous. Yes, um, I'm looking forward to it. I've oh, got tickets to go to the one in Nottingham. Um, ah, it's so, royal, yeah. Yes. Um, I mean, you're doing all these theatres. I mean, obviously, Dick and Dom in the Bungalow has a reputation for being quite messy. Um, I, I mean, you. <laughs> probably don't want to give away too much but have you had to kind of twist some people's arms in allowing a show like that to be done in their nice clean theatres because i imagine what? you can't do that you can't do that as a live stage show without there being 
some form of mess, I suppose. <laughs> well, there, there will be mess. Okay. That's, that's for sure. But we have to we have to be a little bit more uh, contained about it, I suppose. I mean, yes. we can't throw a creamy muck all over the nice plush seats of these beautiful uh, grand theatres. Um, so, yeah, uh, we're, we're going to do the mess, but we're going to do it in, in very clever ways. And uh, hopefully uh, we won't be chased out of town. <laughs> um, by angry theatre managers, um, yeah. So, so obviously we, we've got to be mindful of that, but it will be a big part of the part of the show. Good, good, good. And yeah, because I was in a pub the other day and I heard the Ace of Spades, and I, and I said to my friend who was coming with me, I said, "If they don't play that at that show, I'm not going to be happy." <laughs> yeah, well, it, it's funny because we're, we're trying to because I'm I'm actually writing the script uh, for the show uh, and uh, trying to get as many references in mm. uh, and and old familiar uh, themes and uh, catchphrases and uh, sort of running gags that we had um at the time and yeah it's 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 going well i think people are going to like it good good like it. good yeah because the ace of spades reminds you of two things one of them's the young ones and the other is dick and dom in the bungalow so yes. i always think of it when i hear that song um yeah the, the only thing that surprised me although like you say there may be more dates um next year it was, mm. i looked at the list of places that you're doing and there's one very important place that was missing off that list. Can you guess where? Is it is it Wolverhampton, by chance? No, no. Um, I was I was uh, I looked. I was like, there's no Stoke on Trent. No Stoke on Trent. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> I passed through Stoke on Trent again. Uh, I, I went uh, I went to London to to visit a production facility uh, a couple of weeks ago and. We went through Stoke, and uh, yes, that, that song always leaps to mind when you see the sign at the station there. Um, yeah. Yes, no, no Stoke at the moment, I'm afraid, but uh, that's not to say it might not happen next year. Good stuff. So, yeah. Good stuff. Well, uh, I hope I hope it goes very well. I mean, the response that you've had on social media has been crazy, um, and I believe quite a lot of the tickets sold out within a day, two days, maybe. I yeah, mean... it's it's selling really well. Um, it, it is so. I would I would recommend anybody who, who just think they might like to come along to to book early to avoid disappointment, as they say. Um, yeah, a couple of the venues already have sold out. I'm, I'm uh, led to believe so. Yes, uh, come and see us. It'll be great. Absolutely. It will be brilliant. I mean, I know you probably don't want to give away too many spoilers, but will there will there be a game of bogeys at all? Do you think? Well, it's a funny one, isn't it? Because bogeys, mm. obviously. The, the, the fun, the real fun of bogeys is uh, to, to do it when nobody else is aware True. that you're doing it and to do it in uh, a place where making a lot of noise isn't really uh, appreciated. I'm sure there will be lots of people having unofficial games of bogeys uh, in the audience uh, at various points. Um, but yes, bogeys will, will certainly be a part of the, uh, of the lineup. Are you going to be at every show there to do the commentary? Uh, I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the same uh, without you doing the commentary. <laughs> oh, bless you. Bless you uh, no, I'm afraid not. But, um, yeah, I think uh, actually the, the, there was a game of bogeys at the O2 Arena, an impromptu mm -hmm. one uh, that uh, was famously reported back to us that uh, two, the two halves of the arena started playing bogeys against each other during the interval. And uh, yeah, that was that was quite a thing. So I, I suspect there might be some of that at, at our <laughs> show as well. 
More than likely. Uh, it'll probably turn into like the Rocky Horror Show where everybody gets involved and throws things around and dresses as various things or something like that anyway. Or maybe like... Because um, Tiswas did a reunion thing not too long ago on stage as well. I mean, I, I wasn't there, but I've got friends who did and they said that yeah. they threw buckets of water into the audience and stuff like that. And so, yeah, I imagine it might be, might be similar to that. <laughs> well, we are going to include six members of the audience will okay. be invited mm-hmm. uh, just before the show starts to, to be the bungalow heads. Oh, wow. So if you have a, a lucky golden ticket, if you're chosen, mm-hmm. um, you will be a bungalow head. It is possibly your last chance. Uh, to, to or, or if you missed it at the time, uh, and we are we will have it, will be mostly adults, I think, that yeah. will be will be uh, the bungalow heads. I mean, it is a it is a family show, of course. Yes, of course. And we expect lots of kids to come along. So, um, yeah, I, I, it's probably going to be a mixture of sort of older kids and, and adults yeah. who will be invited on stage. So there'll be a lot of audience interaction in, in that way. Well, um, I, ho- I hope it's a success. Um, I'm, I'm so happy that it's back. Um, you know, Thank it's you. it's definitely a completely different um formats but um i i think it if you did a tv show you know how many people could come and sit and watch that probably not as many as a live tour so it's definitely the way to go really and um i well as we said previously i don't think you get away with half of what you did on the original show now um, <laughs> uh, so yeah and you'll probably get quite a few people who probably have had a drink beforehand as well so that that'll be interesting <laughs> Oh, funny, yeah, I hadn't thought of that. Maybe we should ban alcohol from the, uh, yeah, uh, the surrounding yeah. area for a few hours before each show. Um, yeah, no, I think I think it's going to be great fun, you know. And it's uh, it, it is a, it is a family show, but yeah, there'll be lots in it there for uh, for those of us who uh, remembered it from mm-hmm. from I mean, twenty years ago. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. <laughs> good stuff, good stuff. Since the bungalow, you've you've stayed with CBBC for years, and you've you've created and produced a number of shows, um, such as the Slammer, Hoopla, and, and more recently, a revival of Crackerjack, um, which I've noticed yeah. all have a, a variety element to them. Have you always been a fan of variety shows and wanted to bring that back to a, a modern audience? Um, I remember liking variety shows. I mean, as a kid, when 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 I was a kid, they were all over the place. You know, there were lots of them on TV. You know, every every show has variety acts. Uh, it seemed. Um, and then they went out of fashion for a very long time. And in 2006, 2005, 2006, Joe Godwin, who was the head of entertainment for, for kids uh, at the time, said, I'd really like to bring back a variety show, you know, just uh, 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 some some acts that from, from all around the world that, that, that kids would, wouldn't otherwise get a chance to see. Um, and so looking for a new and interesting and you know a follow-up to the bungalow i suppose uh, an interesting different way of doing that um looked at well what about if we set it in you know we, we perhaps merge it with a sitcom and do something that leads up to a being careful to steer away from the, the muppet show you know because that was that was obviously a, a version of that although their acts were puppet sketches effectively and songs but um yeah and then we 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 looked at various options one of them really appealed and then hit on the idea of a prison uh with showbiz criminals and every week there would be a freedom show and 
a number of acts would be chosen, four acts would be chosen from the prison population to perform in front of uh, an audience of kids. And whoever got the loudest cheers at the end of that show would be released, their debt to society repaid. And, uh, uh, and they'd, be, they'd be on their way. Their sentence would be cut short for whatever showbiz crime it was that they committed. Um, and we were very fortunate to find the brilliant, uh, the one and only Ted Robbins um, to be the governor uh, of, of uh, that show. And he got, when I met him, he was so full of enthusiasm for the idea. Um, it was impossible not, not to ask him to do it. Um, and he came up with a catchphrase, who's the governor? <laughs> You're the governor. That was that was his. He said that one of the first things he said to me when we we met in person for the first time. And I loved I loved Ted from um, well, I mean he'd done lots and lots of stuff, but I particularly remembered him from the League of Gentlemen, uh, playing uh, the guy in, in Creme Brulee, um, which was a, a big a big favourite of mine. The League of Gentlemen still is a, a brilliant show in, in Inside <laughs> Number Nine. Um, and I was very lucky to get to work with Reece Shearsmith on Diddy TV uh, many years later. So yes, so so that's that's how the Slammer was born. We looked at various places to do it because I wanted it to look quite authentic, you know, the prison side of it, the, the sitcom side of it. Uh, and we, we even went to the Bad Girls set. I don't know if you remember Bad Girls, yeah. which was a drama set in a prison. And that was at Three Mills. And, and we, we went and had a look around it, but it was very definitely a drama set. Not a not a studio entertainment. We couldn't get a studio audience in there. You know, there was the performance space as such. So I enlisted um, Mr. Dave Bevin, who David Bevin, who uh, designed the Slammer. Uh, sorry, the the bungalow set uh, for us, um, and also shoot and Crackerjack later on, uh, and asked him to design the Slammer set, which he did fantastically, and, and that uh, stood us in good stead for. Um, Six six series, I think we did all together. Mm-hmm. Slammer and the Slammer Returns. So yeah, you've 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 worked on a lot of stuff on CBBC over the last uh, last many years. I mean, I mean, what what have you been up to recently, and what and what's next for you? Well, um, interesting times as always. Uh, Crackerjack, I, I suppose, was the the, the most recent uh, show, which was an absolute joy. Um, to make and one of the proudest moments of my career was when we had Stu Francis and Bernie Clifton and Jan Hunt uh, and Don McLean come to the studio to see a show and you know it's it's quite a audacious thing to bring something like that back something that was such a massive hit and a household name back in the day uh, and they told me afterwards and they genuinely meant it that they loved it and that was just fantastic and that was what i'd really hoped for you know as much as anything else uh, obviously that we find a, a new audience and it did uh, but that those um forefathers of it you know felt that we did it justice um and they were so kind about it and it was it was actually <laughs> i really get emotional but it was it was quite emotional when they uh, uh, they said how much they they enjoyed the show and how much they thought Sam and Mark were fantastic uh, present. And of course, they are fantastic presenters uh, for that program. Um, so yeah, Crack, Crackerjack is um, uh, sadly not coming back at the moment. Uh, mm-hmm. But we we felt that 
yeah, we, we, we felt very happy with what we did. And it, uh, it had a, a good reception. Had a good reception. Got five stars in The Guardian. That's not easy to come by. <laughs> good stuff. <laughs> um, and uh, also uh, Big Fat Like, which was another series that's not coming back, um, which was a sketch show with uh, Richard David Kane, Joseph Elliott wrote uh, most of it and uh, created, really. And uh, I'm very, very proud of, of that show as well. A sketch show shot entirely during COVID, um, which brought a whole new set of rules to the TV production process, I can tell you. I mean, that's certainly with, with Cracker Jack series two, it was, it was a different. We were the first studio show back in the studio uh, at Media City uh, after the first lockdown or during that first lockdown. And um, to come out to no studio audience and shout Cracker Jack, it's sort of, you lose something, you know, it's, uh, you're only able by law uh, really to get up into about third gear. Um, and, and obviously it hampered a lot of the games and other things that we'd want to do normally because everybody had to be two metres distance from each other. This was when it first started and everybody was, you know, adhering to all of this very strictly. Um, so, so yeah, so th those are, are very recent things. I've actually just met my first preschool show okay. as a producer, uh, Mr Tumble's Busy Bus Day. And I've always, Justin and I have always uh, got on rather well and said that we must do something together sometime. And, and that opportunity arose at the start of this year. And we've just done a Mr. Tumble special. Um, and it's called Mr. Tumble's Busy Bus Day. And it's, it's, it's lovely. It's a charming, charming piece. Not my usual programme. Uh, not, not my usual sort of stuff, but, uh, but very uh, lovely to work on. Uh, and I think a quality item, nonetheless, uh, thanks to, to Mr. Fletcher. Um, and the other, the other incredibly experienced people who, who work on those shows. So for the future, at the moment, it's, it's development. Uh, some interesting new talent is appearing, uh, and we're looking at a vehicle for them. I can't say too much. I don't want to spoil the surprise for anybody. Um, but, yeah, it's, um, you, you know, who knows what's coming next. We are... The BBC BBC in-house productions is is uh, becoming part of BBC Studios, um, so it's a whole new playing field for us, and we'll we'll see what happens. Well, Steve, it's been great chatting to you. Thank you for being such a, a great guest and sharing your memories. And long may the, the shows that you make continue. And and thank you for the great stuff that you've worked on over the last uh, twenty thirty years. Thank you. Well, thank you very much. It's been uh, it's been interesting. I was slightly trepidatious about this, but <laughs> it's actually been uh, it's been a lot of fun. So thank you, Jack. Thank you. A big thanks to Steve for sharing his memories there. Some great anecdotes. Well, that's it for this episode of the podcast. At the moment, the Jack's Throwback Attack series is going to be taking a bit of a break, but I hope to be back next year. Thank you for your support and thanks for listening. From me, Jack Hayward. Goodbye.